Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Uh, So... I grew up in the Christian culture. I grew up going to church, and then I really got into the Christian culture when I showed up at Moody Bible Institute. I went to church, but I didn't go to youth group, and I showed up in this Christian subculture that spoke a language I didn't know existed. Most of those phrases, and now that I have two degrees in Jesus, I can speak that language and the Greek of the New Testament. It's fantastic. When I first got to Crossroads, my favorite part of that video is when they go back and forth with cool words because it means you're doing something cool, you know? When I first got to Crossroads, I led middle school, and I had a group of leaders say, can we change the name? And I said, well, middle school at that time met on Tuesday night, and I said, what's the name of the gathering? And they said, Tuesday night. (laughs) And I said, we're just going to keep it. That's how we roll a little bit, you know? And what this comes down to is in Christian culture, we have a subculture of our own, and we have words and phrases that we use again and again and again, and some are flashy and some are not. Today is one of my favorites. Today we talk about the phrase, guard your heart. We're in a series in the book of Proverbs. It's found in chapter 4, verse 23. And that phrase, guard your heart, man, it's, it's, it's bounced around in Christian subcultures so many times. Sometimes either it takes on a meaning of its own or we forget what it actually means. I'm going to do a series one day, I swear, it's going to be called Coffee Cup Christianity, and we're just going to throw all the seven weeks or eight weeks about the verses that are on coffee mugs. This would be one of them. But here's the problem. When we say words over and over, when we have these cliche phrases that we overuse, sometimes we forget the meaning behind them. And when we say guard your heart, my experience in the church has been it means one of really two things. The first thing that I think we mean when we say guard our heart is something I'd call, you know, the, the, bat, the Black Panther paradox. Have you guys seen that movie? So it's a Marvel movie. It's one of the better ones, I think. The Black Panther paradox is simply, it's this village that is highly advanced in the middle of the world, and, and nobody knows they exist. And the tension in the movie is we have all this goodness to offer people, but if we let people in or let ourselves out, the world knows we exist, and then they pollute the goodness that we become. So sometimes when we see the phrase, guard your heart, it becomes we want to not defile ourselves from the pollution of the messed upness of the out there. If Kirk Cameron made this Christian movie, it would be Black Panther, guard your heart, you know? I mean, there's this ideal, this idea that we don't want to pollute ourselves by being associated with sin, and that's good. I, I think both of the reasons, both of the ways that we translate these phrases now or see these phrases played out in our culture have roots in good things. There was a book two years ago that was written. Um, it's good. It's called The Benedictine Option or The Benedict Option. And this guy wrote it and he basically, he called for Christians to do what um, one monk did, Benedict of Nursia in the sixth century. And he saw Rome was going downhill quickly. They were losing their moral compass if they even had one to begin with. And so he called all Christians to withdraw from Rome and from Italy itself and to start these faith communities that could uphold the goodness, the beauty, and the purity of the gospel. And that's where we, start, we see the beginning of the monasticism movement. And look, let me tell you something. There is beauty in that because the, the message of God should be protected and should be pure and should be undefiled. The problem comes when we make our entirety about pulling away from the pollution of the world. I think if we do that, we don't understand the gospel. 
So one of the ways that we interpret the phrase guard your heart is fight against the pollution of the world outside. I think the other way, if you look at how we use this phrase in the Christian culture, I grew up in the 90s. Like that was my, not prime, but close to it. So I love, like I remember big books of CDs that you flip through. I remember Total Request Live when they actually played music. I remember the boy band battles and I love all of it, you know. And, and I remember in the middle of the 90s, this movement about pure or this movement about, you know, kind of guarding your heart. And it always came down to one aspect of your life. It came down to dating. If you Google guard your heart right now, the first five articles you see are going to be about how you guard your heart in dating. And we taught teenagers all over the United States that you want to guard your heart when it comes to dating, because if you give away too much, you're never going to get it all back. And so it became not just, I don't want to pollute myself from the world outside, but I don't want to in some way allow others to take which I'm unwilling to give. It was not just pollution, but at the same time, it was this idea that we're going to change because we love too much or give too much, so don't. Guard your heart because you can be hurt. And that's true though, you know? C.S. Lewis in, in one of his books, The Four Loves, says this about love. He said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become, it'll become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So we see phrases like guard your heart, and I'm afraid they've taken on a new meaning of their own that are divorced from what it meant in the context of where we find them. And so this morning, what I want to do, since we've talked about a couple ways that I don't think if you take them to the extremes are a good way to interpret this phrase or wisdom about guarding our heart, I want to talk about what the heart is. I want to talk about what's, what's meant when it says to guard it, why we need to, and then I want to spend some time at the end and talk about the implications of that in our world today. It's what it means for us. And maybe it's not the extreme of completely pulling out of the world because we're going to be polluted or protecting ourselves from being hurt. So if you're new to Crossroads, we have two goals on Sunday mornings. We say it every week. The first thing is we want to know God. And the way that we know God is we open his scripture because it paints a picture of his character that we don't see anywhere else. We open the scripture and we know a God that can be known because he's personal. And two things about that. One is, ew, if you've spent time in church, you've probably heard this phrase before, heard it taught before, probably better than I'm about to do today. But that doesn't matter because we believe that when we open the scripture, we can never know the end of our God. And that's a beautiful thing because I need my God to be bigger than me. It doesn't scare me. It gives way to his majesty. So we dive in again and again and again with the knowledge that our job is to know and marvel at the majesty of the God that we worship, who's worthy of it. And the second thing we do is we experience God. As we worship, as we read, as we do the things we do in this place, and all of that, the whole process, isn't just a one-man show and you came, you don't just to sit and to listen, maybe laugh a little. The whole process is something we engage in together because the Spirit of God is in you and when we open the Word of God, it starts shaping your soul into the person work of Jesus. What that means is that you got a job to do this morning as we open the scriptures, to engage with the spirit inside of you and ask how this text is changing and edifying and uplifting and challenging you. And so before we dive into the word together, we're going to spend a couple minutes in prayer. And I'm going to ask if you're comfortable that you ask the spirit of God to engage with you this morning, that you recognize that and wrestle with it. 
I'm going to ask that you pray for me as I teach through a phrase that we've probably all heard before. So let's, uh, let's pray. God, I'm thankful just for the common grace that we can gather here together. I'm thankful that we live in a place that gives us freedom to gather with other believers and say that God is good and that he's our best good. As we open your word today, Spirit, I pray that you speak to us, that you shape our souls, that we might look more like Jesus when we leave than when we walked in. I'd ask if you're comfortable, you spend a couple seconds just silently in prayer and, and ask the Spirit of God to do work in your soul this morning. And ask that you pray for me, that I might be edifying this morning and encouraging and uplifting, that the words I use might paint an accurate picture of the character of God that we see in the scriptures. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said... Amen. We're in it together. Proverbs chapter 4. If you don't know the verse, it goes like this. Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it are the sources of life. Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it are the sources of life. And right in the center of our text today is this concept of heart. And the first thing we have to do is recognize and realize that what they said, what they meant when they said the word heart might be different than what we hear when we hear the word heart because a couple thousand years have passed and we know things now they didn't know then. So first and foremost, when they said the word heart, they absolutely meant what we think, which is your heart is the center of your emotional being. In Psalm 69, it says, scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. Literally in the Hebrew, the, the word heart lends itself to our expression brokenhearted. When we talk about the heart, we're absolutely, absolutely talking about what drives your emotions. But that's kind of where the commonality stop between what's meant by this word heart and what we hear now today. In the days of the Bible, in the Hebrew, they didn't know as much about the body that we know now. They didn't, for example, have a word for brain. We do. So they assumed that everything a person was, everything that drove a person was a, an outworking of their heart. And that's where it kind of breaks for us. And, and we see it because I've taken, I don't know if you guys have done any kind of leadership or personality profiling. Enneagram is taking over the world, everybody, you know. I'm a three with a four wing, if you want to know. So, so as Enneagram takes over the world, and I think about it, if you want to go old school and kick it back a little bit, I used to do something that was really popular called the Myers-Briggs. Anybody do Myers-Briggs? Yeah, we, we felt that was too complicated. There were 16 different things you could be, and so we couldn't put you in a clearly defined box, you know? But Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENTJ, and in the middle of the Myers-Briggs, ENTJ, that T, means that I'm thinking, not feeling, right? It means that I'm cold, cold-hearted. Good luck to my wife and kid, you know? So I'm thinking, not feeling. And right there is how we view the heart. We think in our society that the heart is divorced from or juxtaposed to intellect. We think the heart's emotion and the brain is intellect and those things are too different. You either choose to live in love from your heart or you choose to live in love from your brain. You gotta pick one or the other because those two things can't overlap. They didn't think that in Hebrew. Because the heart was the center of all of who you were. They said things like this in 
Proverbs 2, for wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Literally, your heart didn't just drive what you felt. Your heart in the Old Testament and even in the time of Jesus drove what you knew. It was the center of your emotions and the center of your intellect or your mind. And then finally, we see in Psalm 37, 4, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So we talk about mind, will, and emotion. What they're saying in the Hebrews is that the heart is the center of all of that. Mind, will, and emotion. And when those three things come together, that's what you're guarding, not just how you feel. Tim Keller said it like this. He said, what the heart most loves and trusts, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find desirable, and the will finds doable. The heart was the driving force for your entire life. And when all those three things came together, what it did was paint a picture of you. Your heart is the truest expression of who you really are. And so when it says guard your heart, we have to understand what it means. It's not just guard your emotions. It's saying guard the truest expression of yourself. And if we're going to do that, there's some things we've got to know. One, you, you have to know who you really are a little bit. And that's hard to do because you go back to those personality profiles. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes in those boxes, I check who I want to be, not who I actually am. You know the difference? Like, for example, I, I want to tell people when they ask me, Charlie, do you work out? I want to look them in the face and be like, of course I work out. I think that's important. Here's the truth. I want to be somebody that works out, but I'm an 11-month-old, and I haven't worked out since she's been born, and I've tried. I've set the alarm at 6 a.m. I've got my weights up in my garage. I've got P90X going up there so they can, you know, yell at me or do the insanity workout or whatever it is. And the alarm goes off at 6 a.m. And every single time so far that I've tried, I hit no. And I roll back over and I go to bed. So I can say who I want to be, which is I want to be somebody that works out. I want to be somebody that, that, that really values physical, you know, in shapeness. But right now, who I am, if I'm honest with you, right now who I am is somebody that just tries to sleep enough to get through the days, you know? There's a difference between who we are and who we want to be. And when we talk about the heart, it's us recognizing and realizing that the heart's the truest expression of who we really are. And so it says, guard your heart. And then it says how to do it with vigilance. And what's really important is how we understand this text in the context of Proverbs 4. There are three lectures in Proverbs 4. First one is one through nine-ish, then it goes down to about 20, and then 21 and on. And, and what it does in Proverbs 4 is kind of recap the presence of wisdom, the path of wisdom, and then how you live into wisdom every single day. So when it says guard your heart, it's already made the case that your best good is wisdom that calls, and then you have to pick between the path of foolishness and the path of wisdom. The path of wisdom is the one that you should pick. So now it's saying this is how you do it on a daily basis. It's saying with vigilance, you guard your heart. And the, the implication there is that what you run towards is God's idea of good, his wisdom. What you run towards is God's idea, for God's desires for you. So your heart's aligned with God's desire for you, that they are one. And what that means in our context is literally that God's good is your best good. When it says with all vigilance, what that, that word literally means in the Hebrew, it's a comparative term. It means that, that the desire of your heart or you guarding your heart or the things that make you who you really are, that is what you need to guard against all other goods because here's something we've gotten wrong. There are other goods in this world that are not God, but God is our best good in this world. For example, I have some friends of mine from North Dakota and they're like family to me. They moved down here after they grew up in North Dakota. They moved to Chicago, which is where I lived with them for a little while and they are outdoorsy people. 
They like to hike and bike and do the standing paddleboard thing because that's what everybody does these days. They, for the first time, they, for the first time two weeks ago, went to Colorado in the summer with the rest of Crossroads. And what they did was they found out how beautiful mountains were for the first time. Because I'm not going to lie to you guys, there's not a lot going on in North Dakota. If you haven't been, not missing much. Pick another state. Love North Dakota. They're the sweetest people in the world because that's all they got, right? So they are lovely people, but it is super flat. The last time I was in North Dakota actually was for this guy's dad's funeral, and it was negative 40 degrees with wind chill. And the only thing you could see in the town was Tommy the turtle. It was just a big statue of a turtle, right? I was like, I'm not moving to North Dakota. They went to Telluride, Colorado because their son played in a festival and they showed pictures of hiking and biking. And they said, this is beyond what we expected. It kind of changed and rocked their world all at the same time. Here's why I say that. Because I think there are goods in this world outside of God. But when he says, guard your heart, what it means is make God your best good regardless of all the other goods. Because hopefully all the other goods point to the greatest good that is God. How that plays out is I, I, I uh, I've gotten it wrong sometimes. I, again, grew up in a youth group culture in the 90s. I didn't really do the youth group thing, but I had some friends that went, and one friend, Carol, every single Tuesday would invite me. She said, Charlie, are you coming tomorrow? And I'd say, yep, I'll see you there. For four years, I didn't go once. I felt so bad for Carol, but she is so sweet. And looking back now, I see how sweet she was. And about once a year in the mid-90s, my friends that were the Jesus followers, they had these books of CDs because you had CDs with books and books and books that you kept under your car seat. And if you were really cool, you had like a six CD changer in your car, you know? And anyway, about once every year, these kids would be convicted and they would throw out all the secular CDs and fill it with like DC Talk and other Christian artists, newsboys, is that a thing, Right. And I would love it because I got free CDs at that point in my life because they were so convicted that their only good should be God. Look, I'm not saying here that you shouldn't do that. I'm simply saying that what this passage means is that God's good is your best good and all other goods, whether they're secular music or not, should point back to the good of God. And if it takes your affection away from God, it's no longer good for you. Augustine, when he talks about it, calls this the ordering, the proper ordering of our loves. He says this in book, The City of God. This is true of everything created. Though it is good, it can be loved in the right way or the wrong way. In the right way, that is, when the proper order is kept. In the wrong way, when that order is upset. So really, the conversation about guarding your heart is one about properly ordering your loves. The truest expression of who you really are plugged into the desires of wisdom, God, Jesus, as we defined it a couple weeks ago. Because when we order our loves the wrong way, we see the breakdown in our system. Dante, who came up with the seven deadly sins, really used this idea of the ordering of love. And all of those seven deadly sins that we've heard about, read about, are, are, are misordering of the loves. The proud, envious, and wrathful were guilty of misdirected love. The slothful were guilty of deficient love. The, the gluttonous and the lustful were guilty of excessive love. He makes the case that if virtue is love rightly ordered in our hearts, it stands to reason that vice is the opposite. When we say guard your heart, what we're asking is the question is what is, what are your loves? And any love that you have that pulls you away from your love for Jesus isn't a good love anymore. One commentator said it like this, I liked it. He said, to set your heart on any good thing is to awaken the power to assess it. It must be had at all costs. Not now because of its worth, but because you have promised it to yourself. So he says, guard your heart. 
with all vigilance. Guard all your truest expression of yourself, your desires, your heart, your will, your emotion. All of that should be found in the wisdom of God because that's what you were created for. It should be your best good. And if anything else vies with that as your best good, it's no longer wisdom. Don't let that happen. That's what it means to guard your heart. And he says, do it with vigilance. And when we say vigilance, we see a couple things in the texts around us. There's, if you read verses 20 through 27 where the chapter ends, I see a lot of body parts thrown in there. A lot of language about body parts. And what the, the writer's doing is using something called a metonymy. A metonymy simply is when we use a part to define the whole. It's when you talk about corporate execs and you say suit. It's when we say the phrase, you know, the pen is mightier than the sword. For example, if you bring a pen to a sword fight, you're going to die. But what it means is literally that the power of words is greater than the power of, of brutality. That's what God says in his scriptures when he says life and death is in the tongue. We see it again when he says in one of the old works, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. He literally doesn't mean go Van Gogh on yourselves. What he means is listen to my words. It's metonymy. So when it says in Proverbs 4.25, let your eyes look directly in front of you and let your gaze look straight before you. In verse 26, make the path for your feet level so that your ways may be established. What they're saying is wherever you go, all the times that you go, consistently make God your best good, your only desire, the truest expression of who you really are. Whatever step you take, what they're making the case for there is that all of you needs to filter into the idea of the heart. It's saying not just your heart, but that, that works itself out through the rest of your body. And what it makes the case for is consistency in action. What it's saying there is literally it takes all of you, every part of your body, and it takes every single day. Because sometimes, sometimes we fall into this trap of saying, if I just get rid of all my Christian CDs, that'll do it, that'll fix it, that'll be it. He's saying it's not a one-time moment, it's a choice we choose. Every day we wake up in the morning, we choose wisdom. We have to, again, set our desires on God as our first thing. And camp culture is good. And, and, and workshops we go to are good. And conferences we go to that, that set our heart afire again are good. But they're not the only good. And that's all we use to align our hearts to God's desire. Then we're missing the work of the everyday. There was every Sunday growing up. There's, I, I love... I love bad TV. I've told you guys this. I watch Daystar all the time. I love infomercials. I love infomercials. I've liked them since I was a small child. There was one called the Soba Cow Pillow. It's made with buckwheat husks, everybody. I watched that probably 200 times. I owned one until about two weeks ago. I think my wife finally threw it away, right? There's another one. I come home on Sunday mornings from church, and I used to go back to the back bedroom on the small little 12 or 13-inch TV, and we didn't have dish at that point or satellite. You just had the channels that you got, you know, the magic in the air channels. And... And I'd turn on, I think, channel 12 or 13, I forget. And there was this infomercial every Sunday. Same one. I kept watching it. It was this man named Ron Popeil. I don't know if you know who Ron Popeil is. He designed kitchenware. This dude is worth $200 million, everybody. So, you know, let's not laugh too hard, right? We're just laughing at ourselves. He had this one thing called the Showtime Rotisserie and Barbecue. It was an oven. Two things there. One, don't call it a barbecue. Come to Texas. That's just blasphemy. Two, he called it the Showtime Rotisserie and Barbecue, and he'd start every infomercial with this crowd that was just, if you looked at their faces, they were exuberant. And I thought they were so excited, like excited. And he'd do this thing where he'd put a chicken in this oven that twisted, and he'd say to the crowd, what do we do? And they'd yell back joyously, set it, and forget it. And I'm like, have we not Heard of it. Is that just not an oven? But it's okay. They thought we cracked the technology. It wasn't until years later when my innocence was stripped away that I realized those people were getting paid. But that's all right. I thought they were so excited for Ron Popeil. 
My point there is simply sometimes we think wisdom, the pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of guarding our heart is more of a set it and forget it mentality than wake up every morning and. And what it says in our text is that if our affections are to make God our best desire all the time, then it's something we do every single morning when we wake up. As we look everywhere and as we walk everywhere, and that your eyes look directly in front of you and make, make the path for your feet level. But you got to understand, when it says guard your heart, there's some more things that we see in our text. One, if we're going to guard our heart, if we're going to make our truest expression of ourselves line up with what God says we are and should and will be, if we're going to do that, there's really only one way, and it means you've got to know yourself. That's difficult. So we go back to the leadership profiles, and there's just as much value if you do like Strength Finders, for example, which tells you five words that, that describe you. I had a conversation last week. There's almost just as much value in knowing your top five and your bottom five because your bottom five is where you're susceptible to bad things. John Calvin says it like this, nearly all wisdom we possess, this is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Benjamin Franklin says it another way, three of the hardest entities are steel, a diamond, and self-knowledge. Proverbs talks about it like this, as water reflects the faith, so one's life reflects the heart. Here's what we have to know about guarding our heart. If you're going to guard your heart, you've got to know yourself, and that's a difficult task because it's painful. You've just got to be honest with yourself. I had a buddy of mine, my best friend, and he would journal almost every day. Almost every single day. I, I try to journal and I do every once in a while. I tried to do it every day for a year and kind of like reading through your Bible in a year. I got about five days in, hit Leviticus and stopped. And so I, um, I envy what he does every year. He journals for a whole year. And then on New Year's Eve every year, he buys himself a really good bottle of wine and he stays inside wherever he's at. And he reads back through the year of journals and see how he's changed and see how God's shaped him and been faithful to him. And sometimes those are good years and sometimes those are bad years and you have to relive some hate and some hurt. It's difficult. One of the hardest things for me to do now, and I do it every once in a while because it's difficult if you guys have done this, but try listening or watching yourself if you give a presentation or if you give a talk or if you give a sermon. You turn and I know you're thinking, you don't listen to yourself every week. We have to, you should have to too. No, I don't. <laughs> Because I get about 30 seconds in and I say to myself, why didn't anybody tell me I sound like that? <laughs> this is miserable, you know? It's that whole idea. I watched myself. We're trying to do more video stuff here. I watched myself about two, three months ago. And I was like, who is that guy? And where, where did Workout Charlie go? And I say, you know, the camera adds 10 pounds. How many cameras are on me? That kind of idea, you know? It, it's really hard to be reflective. It's really hard to know yourself, but if we're going to guard our hearts, we have to understand and know where our strong points are, and you have to understand the affections that are vying for your affection for God. And if you don't know that, you don't know what to watch out for. But two, what else is implied isn't just that you do some self-reflection, but that you let others reflect for you, because there are places in your life about you that you don't see. Proverbs 25, the purposes of a person's heart are deep, waters, but one who has insight draws them out. At Crossroads, we say you can't do life alone. It's not a suggestion. It's a mandate by God because we're built for one another. And there are places, dark places, good places, all in between places in your life that you have that you don't see are good, bad, or indifferent. A couple years ago, probably five or six, I, I uh, gave a sermon at a church plant in Frisco. Um, 
they haven't asked me back yet. I gave a sermon at a church plant in Frisco, and um, I remember I was teaching for this guy. It was a decently new church, and, and afterwards I went out to lunch with him, and I, yeah, I was just encouraged, and I just said, hey, tell me what you heard. Tell me what you saw. And it's really interesting. When you take a preaching class in seminary, one of the first things they're going to teach you is that you need to be personal. Share stories about your life because it makes it personal. People latch on to that. You, you begin to see that I'm, I'm working out my faith with you guys. This isn't a top-down model. This is a side-to-side model, you know? If you haven't figured it out yet, I'm not very perfect. Come talk to me for three seconds after the sermon. You'll see it. And so I'm sitting talking to this guy, and I said, hey, man, what can I do differently? What can I change? And he said, hey, one small thing. He said, all the stories you used were about you. I said, yeah. I thought that's what you're supposed to do. And he said, Here's what you got to know. Sometimes, sometimes if people don't know you, that can come across as pretty arrogant. He said, if all the stories you use are about you, then it leads people to believe, right or wrongfully so, that you think about you all the time. And I was like, oh my goodness. I, I had no idea that was there. And I use that now when I teach people how to teach. I say, hey, stories about you are important, but if all the stories are about you, maybe it becomes about you more than it becomes about Jesus. And so let's not do that. I'm going to keep telling you stories about me, though. Um, but I think we need others to show us the blind spots in our heart that we can't see as we try and have our truest expression of ourselves line up with God's version of wisdom or our good. So when we guard our heart, it's really a continuing conversation about who we are and what we want to be. One commentator says, for the Christians to keep his heart means for him to pay close attention to the direction in which affections are moving to discover the things of the world that are gaining a firmer and fuller hold over him or whether they're increasingly losing their charm for him. Guarding our heart is making sure our affections line up with God's ultimate good every single day as we reflect on ourselves and let other people help us out in that process. And we need it. So he says, because it's the truest expression of who you are, guard that with all you have. And if we're going to take that definition of guarding our heart into the world around us, I think three things are implied from that. First and foremost, I think if we're going to talk about guarding our heart, which is making sure that our truest expression of ourself, our mind, will, desires, if they're all pointing towards the wisdom of Jesus, we have to understand the correlation between what we consume and what we become. Proverbs 4 says, Do not enter the path of the wicked, a walk in the way of those who are evil. The Proverbs seemingly, time and time again, make a connection between what you do and what drives your desires. So it's saying, don't enter the path of the wicked or walk in the way of those who are evil. It goes down to verse 16, talking about don't do that because they just want to hurt you. And if you do and live into their ways over time, that will be your desires. And what we do, because we have a, a shallow sense of the word heart, is we tie desires to emotions. And we think our emotions shape our desires. The proverb is going to say it's the other way around. That your desires are shaped by what you do, not what you feel. On Friday, my wife and I went to see a movie. And we only got to do that because her sister decided to come over and watch our kid because most movies start after our kid goes to bed. This is like the second movie we've seen in 11 months. And we see that all the time. And so we called her and we said, hey, do you mind taking care of my child on Friday night? This girl is 25. She is single and she lives in a cool part of Dallas, okay? And this is a Friday night. And we said, so do you mind taking care of my small, adorable, beautiful child on Friday night? And she said, and I love this, she said, I've been hoping you would ask. <laughs> I was like, is this what your Friday nights look like? If so, you pay too much in rent to live where you live, you know? She said, no. She said, I just, 
I really want to get in a good run the next morning, so I just want to lay low. And I thought to myself, words I've never said, right? (laughs) Two, and this is what blew me away, how did she get to the point where her desire for a good run, again, doesn't exist, a good run shaped what she did on Friday night. Because when I was 25 and single and living with friends in Dallas, let me tell you, my Friday nights didn't look like me taking care of an 11-month-old toddler as something I wanted to do. And I think over time, she started training for things, and when she first started running, she hated it. She'd do a mile and two miles and three miles, then a half marathon. Then, I mean, I think running leads you to insanity because in a full marathon... Because when you think about it, nobody says one day if they haven't ran before. You know what I really want to do? Sprint somewhere. And I believe it's because it reminds us of who we used to be. We ran because we were prey, everybody. So you ran from things that ate you, all right? That's why I don't run now. Reminds me that I'm weak, you know? And so she said, I I just want to have a good run. So the act of doing over time shaped her desire. And now it comes to the place where she's willing to sacrifice a Friday night as a single, you know, person in Dallas to take care of my kid because she just wants to get up early and run before it's 107 degrees outside. What you do shapes your desires because your heart is about what you do, mind, will, emotion. I had a prof in college, someone Ronald Sauer, take a different kind of illustration on this one. He he fought the Vietnam War and uh, I was sitting in his class and he told me the story. He said, I came back from Vietnam and I was pretty messed up. He said, I saw some awful, awful things. He said, I came back and and the last thing I wanted to do was to talk to God or to read the Bible because I left a Christian. I believed all these good things about God because I grew up in church and in youth groups and I saw some things that you can't unsee. He said, so the last thing I want to do is open my Bible and read any of it because it didn't make sense. I had some questions about who God was and how I could let this happen. Rightfully so. This man was a man of discipline. (laughs) And he said, but I knew I needed to, so I started. He said, I started reading my Bible for two minutes a day two minutes a day. He said, whether I wanted to or not, I read my Bible for two minutes a day. He said, and then it started to actually be enjoyable, and I lengthened it to five minutes. And then I started really liking what I was reading, and then it became 20 minutes and 30 minutes. Fast forward 30 years later, when I met the man, he was the most sought-after Bible teacher at Moody Bible Institute. He had this party trick that blew me away. Literally, he had memorized the entire New Testament. You could look at the man, give him a reference. Hebrews 7, 3 and 4, he'd stop, he'd look up, and then he'd come back at you and recite it word for word, right? My point here is simply that if your desire doesn't match up with God's design, start doing God's design and your desire will follow. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 when he says, hey, you've heard it said all these things? Let me tell you what love looks like. This is how you love your enemy. You're not going to want to. That's why they're your enemy. But do it anyway, and it will change your heart. Your desire will be shaped by what you do. I think the Proverbs are full of that kind of wisdom. So we have to understand that what we do should be monitored because there's a major difference between guarding our hearts and giving them away. What we do shapes who we're becoming. And if guarding our heart is about allowing our truest expression of ourself with God's good for us, then we have to be cognizant of how what we're doing is shaping who we're becoming or what our desires are. Two, I think the other implication in our text this morning isn't just, hey, you know, what you do affects who you become or what your desires are. But two, I love the idea that it says, guard your heart. Because there's some implications there. And this really kicks back against the idea that if we're guarding our heart, it means we withdraw from the world around us. I think actually it tells us the opposite, that if we're guarding our heart, it shows us where we're supposed to be in the first place. So for example, my family is from on my dad's side, Iowa. And I remember the first time 
I'm driving him to go to Iowa, and, and we get up there, and I need the keys to the car, and it's in the middle of nowhere, Farmville, USA. And I said, Dad, where are the keys? He said, in the car. I said, in the car? He said, in the car. I said, where in the car? He said, the ignition. I said, you left the keys to the car in the ignition of the car. And he said, of course I did. We're on the farm, right? This beautiful, perfect place where there was nothing wrong that smelled like pig manure. Yeah? So good. So I moved back to Dallas, and we moved into our first apartment, and it was in the design district in Dallas, and we go away on our honeymoon, and we come back, and our car's broken into because somebody wanted to take a bunch of old jeans that were in the back of my wife's car. Long story short is every time my dad went to my apartment, I think he double and triple checked if the car was locked, and he took his keys with him. When it says guard your heart, I don't think in any way this first means withdraw from the world around you. I think it means recognize that our gospel from the get-go has always been a gospel of going, not withdrawing. That's what Jesus talks about, and that's what he said. That's why he says in Matthew 28, therefore go and make disciples. We talked about it last week, but the culture we live in is more and more antagonistic to the message and the story of Jesus. Gallup put out a poll last year, and they said the number of the American adults who say they have no religious preference doubled from 8% in 2000 to 19% in 2008. The, the, the story of our culture is not one that values the story of Jesus. It moves away from there. So when it says, guard our heart, in no way is it saying, withdraw from the culture around you. I think it's saying the opposite. Guard your heart because where you find yourself needs Jesus and doesn't know Jesus. I think it's calling us to press in to the ways and rhythms of Jesus and not withdraw from it. So often we hear this verse and we think we're going to be polluted by the world around us, so we shouldn't engage. My favorite story in the New Testament, favorite one, is in Mark chapter 2. I reference it all the time. Jesus meets a tax collector. If you didn't know, tax collectors, very bottom of the rung. They stole from their people and gave it to the oppressors of their people. Matthew was one of them. He meets Levi, same guy, and he says, Am I come to your house for dinner? And Levi says, Do you know who I am? And he says, I do. And as he's eating dinner with the tax collector and his friends, and that's an intimate experience in the first world, he's eating dinner with them, some rabbis pop in. They walk by. Some priests walk by. And they look at Jesus and they have a serious question from their souls. They say, how can you, how can you rub shoulders with these evil, wicked people without feeling evil and wicked? How can you do this? And he says, you don't understand. I came to eat with these people. This is the place I'm supposed to be. And if Jesus is walking here and now I'm afraid, if we went to eat with them, we'd sit to Jesus and say, guard your heart, bro. Don't go. Instead, Jesus says, no, 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 this is the exact place I'm supposed to be. One of my favorite authors talks about the story of Jesus. She has this quote that I love. She says, we could not become like God, so God became like us. God showed us how to heal instead of kill, how to mend instead of destroy, how to love instead of hate, how to live instead of long for more. When we nailed God to a tree, God forgave, and when we buried, we buried God in the ground, God got up. This beautiful depiction that our job as Christians isn't to pull away from culture, it's supposed to step into it because that's what Jesus did for us again and again and again. John Stott is one of the best theologians in the last hundred years, and he has a whole paper. It's called Christ the Controversialists. He talks about our role in the world. If you want to email me, I think it's amazing. It's a long quote, I'm going to read it to you. He says, Now God sends us out into the world like Christ, not to run away and escape but to enter the pain of distraught humanity, to think and feel our way into people's doubts, difficulties, distresses, to be channels of love, of God's as both servants and witnesses, 
to bring what relief we can and the good news of salvation through Christ's death and resurrection. Such is our responsibility. Nothing but costly involvement is Christian. Withdrawal to whatever degree is Pharisaic. As our Lord took on flesh, so he calls his church to take on the secular world. Otherwise, we do not take seriously the incarnation. That's why it says in First John, in John 1, when Jesus showed up, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot, has not, will not overcome it. Because our role is to go. And so we end our passage with guard your heart with all vigilance because from it is the source of life. And so really when we say guard our heart, it doesn't mean withdraw, it doesn't mean, doesn't mean protect yourself from being hurt, it doesn't mean any of those things. What it means is if you look at the three lectures of wisdom before the two lectures of wisdom before this third in Proverbs 4, it's making the case that if your heart is constantly aligned with God's desires, if the truest expression of who you are lines up with the truest expression of who God wants you to be, wherever you go, that source takes life to the places you show up in. What it's saying is literally that we guard our heart because we're going to go to hard, difficult, sad places. And when the truest expression of you lines up with God's good, wherever you find yourself, you find yourself bringing life. So you need to guard your heart because you're supposed to go to places where there isn't. I was reading this week about nuclear subs because, you know. And as I was reading about nuclear subs, I found something that was really interesting. I'm a little ADHD. Um, A little interesting. It said that nuclear subs, these incredible military vessels, can stay underwater for 90 days. But every 90 days, the submarine must resurface to maintain proper alignment with the North Star. While underwater, the submarine's navigational system is affected by the Earth's magnetic forces. Because these submarines carry missiles of mass destruction, they must pay close attention to the keeping of the navigational equipment aligned to the true reference point of the North Star. The nuclear submarine provides an excellent picture of the heart, just as the submarine may have enough physical provisions like food and water and everything it needs to survive, it can't perform at its highest level or its mission without maintaining the proper alignment to its true reference for Your heart is the navigational equipment for your life. It must stay aligned with God's good. By guarding your heart, you stay locked on God's will in the wellsprings of life. And what that means is that wherever we go, in the hard, in the distraught, in the sad, sometimes in the good places, if we do things to align our heart, every day wake up and say, are my affections, is my truest expression of myself finding its fullest good and God's idea of wisdom that we see in the scripture, if that's the case, wherever we go, no matter how turbulent the waters, we bring life to those spaces. It's what's needed in our world. So then guarding our heart isn't about protecting us from the pain and pervasiveness of the world. It's about pressing into Jesus so we can show the world the wisdom of God. Simply put, when we press into and guard our heart, it's preparing us for the mission of God. And sometimes I think as Christians, we say this word, this phrase quite a bit, and it means either withdrawing from or not giving enough because we don't want to be heard. And I I think that misses the point. Because I think when we guard our heart, we find fullness of joy and walking in God's wisdom, and we need to protect that because we're called to go to the places that don't think the same thing. I want to end with some words by John Stott because, well, he's just better than me. Um, In his article, he said, the conclusion brings us to one of the great paradoxes of Christian living. The whole church is called and every member of it 
as much to involvement in the world as to separation from it, as much to worldliness as to holiness, not to a worldliness which is unholy, nor a holiness which is unworldly, but to holy worldliness. A true separation to God which is lived out in the world, the world which he made and sent his son to redeem. Only the power of God can deliver us from the grudging, judging attitude of the elder brother, from the false pharisaic fear of contamination by contact and from the aloofness which refuses to get involved. In place of all this, we need the compassion of Christ. Let the Pharisees of today, let the Pharisees of today's church murmur their disapproval if they will, if only they also say of us as they said of our master, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful that you've given us the responsibility to share your wisdom with the world that needs it. I'm thankful that as we go in our world that vies for our affections, that vies for our desires, that vies to make the truest expression of ourself find fulfillment in something other than God, I'm thankful that you call us to guard our hearts so that we can take that message into a world that needs it. So give us boldness, courage, compassion, Give us honesty as we have these conversations with ourselves and, and good people around us that can be honest with us. So that as we guard our heart, we can show people what it, what it means to follow Jesus. And they begin to see his beauty. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.